You're listening to episode 15 of the Money Owners Podcast with me, Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally and financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice, and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on Money Owners Coaching, the podcast, the homework, and everything I have to offer, visit moneyowners.com. What is happening, fellow money owners? Today is another Q&A day. And you know what? I'm actually, (laughs) I'm really quite excited to do Q&A because I feel like that's the whole point of this podcast is to like get answers out there to people who want their questions answered. And the whole reason why I'm doing this podcast is I really want to help you solve your financial problems. And um, I guess as a side note, I am sick. <laughs> um, I also got back from Seattle where I was visiting my family and it was amazing. Um, I always love going out there. I get to spend so much time with my sister and my two nieces, um, and my brother-in-law and the weather was like really beautiful. And I honestly think Seattle is lying to everyone about how much rain they get because every time I go out there, there's no rain and it's like really nice weather. And I think that they're just trying to keep people out of Seattle. Um, but yeah, so we got... We went to like a kid's place. It was called Kids Quest. And I'm like totally 100% convinced because it happened to be raining that day and we wanted to take the kids out of the house that um, that's where my son got sick because it was one of those indoor like kids cesspools of germs and everything else. And they were like all touching everything and then putting everything in their mouths and sneezing and everything else. Um, and of course, we did that like pretty close to the beginning of the trip. So Alex was sick for, you know, about the whole half, second half of the trip. And then I got sick too, which was great. Um, <laughs> and then we got on a plane and Alex continued to be sick. And I thought we were all done, but turns out, nope, I am getting a second round of it. So lucky me. Um, and yeah, I am telling you all of this because I think I probably sound a little nasal on this episode compared to other ones. Um, and I'm actually also hoping, and please give me feedback on this because I know there's been some issues that people complained about the audio quality. I think I finally (laughs) figured out what I'm supposed to be doing. I know it only took 15 episodes, but, um, here we are. And I think I figured out how to, um, increase the audio quality and everything else that goes along with that. So, yeah, let me know. Send me a uh, you know a DM on Twitter and tell me whether or not you thought my voice sounded a little bit better. Um, but yeah, so back to Q&A day. I'm going to try to get through as many questions as possible. People sent in some really good ones, and I'm really excited about it. And I just want to make sure that I'm here for y'all and that you're getting the stuff that you've asked answered. So let's dive right in. All right, so the first one is, why isn't every kid taught financial basics? We teach them about dinosaurs, but not dividends. What gives? Um, and I <laughs> I love this question. It was one of my clients who sent this in, and I know he was kind of joking, but um, I wanted to answer it anyways, and I figured he actually sent this in a while ago, but I would answer it now. Um, it really should be, and it's not. But as a parent, it really is your responsibility to teach your kids these concepts. So... What do I mean by that? Like, how can you teach your kids? So I know like, you know, they're not, if they're not getting it in school, it is our responsibility as parents to kind of bestow this knowledge on our children. But that said, if you're a parent and you don't actually know how to handle your own finances, then what do you do? How do you actually teach this to your kids? Um, And that's where like kind of this whole idea of ownership and taking responsibility for your finances comes in. So 
You really need to change your thoughts about how you're approaching your finances. And instead of saying to yourself all the time, I don't know how to do this, either you know, realize that you do know, and there are ways for you to find out to get good information or seek the help of somebody who can really kind of set your foot straight on the financial basics that will help you actually bestow that knowledge onto the next generation. So I know it's really hard to believe because I'm like always on here preaching (laughs) everything about personal finance. You think that like, since I was born, I knew everything about how to manage your money. And the truth of that is that it's, I didn't. Um, In fact, I had um, a long struggle to get where I am today. I don't think I learned everything I needed to know as a kid. I definitely didn't learn it at school. And I think that my parents did their best to try to teach both my sister and I what they knew about money, but they don't know it to the extent of what I know now. Um, and I certainly didn't know it to the extent of what I know now growing up. And I would say I probably didn't really start learning until I got my first job out of college. And the reason why it's because it was like the first real time in my life where I was actually earning money and I had to pay bills, <laughs> which I know is like really sad and probably other people, they started that much earlier. But my parents always said to me growing up that my job was to go to school and my job was to get good grades and my job was to do all the extracurriculars and everything else that they put me into. So um, my job was not to get a job. <laughs> and um, we also didn't have an allowance um, growing up. We had, um, you know, ask your parents for money. <laughs> so what that meant was you would like go, you know, tap your mom, tap my mom or tap my dad and say, Hey, I need 20 bucks. And they'd usually be like, why do you need 20 bucks? And my dad actually has a good joke about this, which I think all like good Jewish dads do is like $20. (laughs) He would ask for, he'd say, dad, I need $20. And you'd go, Fifteen dollars. What do you need ten dollars for? Um, <laughs> and he would inevitably give me, you know, the money that I wanted or needed. Um, but I don't think necessarily that. As I think, like the level there was like my parents felt like as long as they asked us, if we are as long as we asked them for money, that they had a good idea of what we were spending it on, then they were able to decide whether or not that was something that they thought we should be spending money on, and then they would give us the money. Um, and. I don't know whether or not this is true, but I tend to think um, now as a parent that giving your kids a little bit more autonomy and trusting them, even though they'll probably spend money on stuff that you won't agree with, is actually the way to go. Um, And there's a number of reasons why. So uh, my sister and I talk about this quite a bit because she is a dietitian um, out in Seattle and she um, works for Nintendo running their wellness program. It's pretty cool what she does. And we always talk about how there's so much overlap between um, being like personal health and wellness and your nutrition and your diet, um, and also personal finance. Um, and I think it's largely just because behavior in general (laughs) has a lot of overlap. So when there are subjects where like human behavior gets involved, then we start to manifest similar behaviors just in different ways with different things. So a lot of the like things that lead people to go on to go on to diets or other, other things that are going on in their brain that they probably need to change their thoughts about. It's like similar things manifest with your money. So, and this is actually pretty top of mind of me because I was just in Seattle and we've been talking about this stuff quite a bit. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about is, um, is, feeding children. And because I'm not an expert at this, I've deferred to my sister quite a bit to get some information about it. And the number one thing that seems to be common is that when you give your kids more autonomy over what they eat, they tend to become better eaters over the long term. And then they tend not to like 
uh, shun the very thing that you're trying to get them to eat. So for example, if you make your kids sit at the table and they can't get up or have dessert until they finish all their green beans, right? As an adult, they're probably not going to want to eat those green beans. Why am I telling you all this? (laughs) So I'm telling you all of this because similar things apply to children with their money. I think that you, it is right to give kids an allowance, but it's not right to tell them what to spend that money on. So that's how you teach responsibility. You have to teach them how to have goals and how to save money and how to do all the things that you think is important for them to do with their money. But at the end of the day, they're going to make mistakes, which we all do. And I'm sure you can think right now as I'm talking of things that you've purchased with your money that you were like, that's probably not something I should have done. Um, I can certainly think of something right off the top of my head. And (laughs) um, yeah. And then so Right, your kids are going to make similar mistakes that we make as adults for sure because they're kids and they don't know what they're doing, and half the time we don't know what we're doing either, right? So, but the whole point of it is that you give them the autonomy to do that. Um, and when you give them the autonomy and you let them make mistakes and you let them lose money or you let them spend money on something that they don't really need and then that they regret, they learn from these things rather than you like trying to force them to eat the green beans or force them to buy something that they don't want with their money or force them to save it because you think it's in their best interest to like have a very large piggy bank and have them save up, let's say for a bike rather than them going and buying candy every single week or whatever it is that they're doing that you absolutely hate. Um, I actually did a piece on this in my financial planning practice and I think it's (laughs) like, I would love to link to it in the show notes, but I actually think it's like, um, one of those compliance things where I can't solicit my financial planning practice through here. So in doing so, that would be soliciting. And that probably is some gray area of badness. Um, Not going to get into the details on that. But I did go through like, what's appropriate per age to be teaching kids with money. Um, And really what it comes down to is like, you have to know your kid for sure. Um, but you have to like give them as much responsibility at each stage of their life that they're able to handle. Um, and teach them how to be responsible, essentially. (laughs) And the more you do that and the more autonomy you give them and the more you allow them to feel like they are a little human that can make decisions, the more they're actually going to make good decisions, which I know seems counterintuitive. It seems like, oh, if we kind of force our impression onto them that we can get them to do what we want and we can get them to be good savers or good whatever we think that they can do. But really, I mean... A couple of things. One, they'll probably just be resentful. And two, we actually don't have as much control over our children as we think. So the best that we can do is lead by example and show them all of the good habits that we have around our money and then also teach them how to be responsible with their own money and then let them kind of live to their own devices. So I know it doesn't really answer the question of why we don't teach this in school. And frankly, I mean, I'm not an early childhood educator or an adolescent educator, so I don't, I don't know necessarily if I have um, the wherewithal to tell you why they do or don't teach things in school. I mean, I do know from being in school. Yeah, I know I went to school a long, long time ago. Um, now I'm just like an old lady that yells at people about their finances. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, so I think that they try to teach kids to be um, creative, I hope at least. Um, and then they try to teach you a little bit more abstract so that you, when it comes to the practical, you already know how to do things from a more abstract place so then you can actually do a practical thing. That said, I don't, I mean, I don't really know why they do what they do. I think that it's wrong. I really do think that it would be really helpful, especially in middle school. I think middle school is such a good impressionable age to like give kids a lot of stuff to do with money. Um, for starters, like, 
anyone over the age of 10 is basically like a little human that can really understand quite a bit. Um, and they can do a lot with numbers. You're already like, you've been, you've had math for quite a long time now at that point by the time you're 10. So you've seen the, like what numbers look like and you can pretty much do everything I think that we can do now as adults. Um, so really, I, and you're also like, you're just, you're much more willing to learn. I feel like by the time you get to high school, you know, people, they, they have their, they go through those years of puberty and angst and they're le much less willing to learn these things than let's say otherwise if you're in middle school. So I really think that like giving your kids a good foundation, you know, between the ages of four and 10 and then really like kind of hammering at home when they turn 10 and starting to incorporate this even in school or if you're not getting it at school at home would really be the right place to do it. Um, and I know I'm going to regret saying this on the air because I think it's going to tie me to doing it, but I've actually always thought about writing a book for that specific age group because I feel like they would just get so much out of it. Um, yeah, I guess now I've just committed to doing that at some point in the future. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so let's go to the next question. Morgan, we are two business owners and we both get paid irregularly. I know on the last Q&A episode, you answered a question about one business owner and one person who had a W-2 job. Um, but we both get paid irregularly and we do make a decent living, but we also want to buy a home. Health insurance is also really expensive as two business owners. How do we manage given this level of unpredictability? I love this question. Um, yeah, so my first thought on this is actually not a thought at all <laughs> about how to manage your finances. It's really just something that one of my good friends told me when I was complaining about how both my husband and I run businesses and blah, blah, blah. I was complaining about something. I don't even remember what it was. But the thing that she said to me is... She, cause she also, um, her and her husband also both run their own businesses. And she said, I'm grateful that our lives allow us to support each other no matter what. And I think sometimes leading with something like that, and you can obviously manipulate that thought of what I just said, that I'm grateful our lives allow us to support each other no matter what. You can use that thought and change it to apply it to your specific situation. But really, I think it's one of the things where as somebody who is in a, um, a relationship where both of us are business owners, it's one of the most amazing things about our relationship is that we both have the freedom and flexibility to be doing the things that we want to be doing in our work all of the time. Um, I love that. And I love hearing that from my clients too. And sometimes it's not necessarily that their business owner is doing that. Sometimes it's really just that one person wanted to go out on their business and do it, but the other person really wanted to like, let's say, take a pay cut and do something that they thought was a little bit more meaningful than whatever they were doing before. Um, and I think that's super nice about that is that then both people are fulfilled in their work and they're happier humans and they come home and they're happy that they left for the day and they're happy when they come home. And then it actually makes planning much easier when you're a happy human. So when it makes it unhappy and hard is when you're both two business owners, but you don't recognize that you have freedom and flexibility and that you're supporting each other throughout this process. Um, and you both get paid irregularly and it gets actually really hard to suffer through those troughs where no money is coming in and you don't actually know how ends are going to be met. So I think, well, all of this is just thoughts related stuff, but let me also give you some practical advice about it. So when a large payment comes in, you have to be hyper vigilant, have to be hyper vigilant. I mean, like super hyper vigilant. So um, what do I mean by that? Right. So usually people who get paid irregularly, it's not like you get, um, it has to be right that you get large chunks of payments if you're making a decent living and then you don't get a lot of money for quite some time. It's not like somebody else who, you know, gets paid like even small amounts every single day it would probably be easier to manage, I think, than having 
one large payment that only comes once a year and you don't actually know when that payment is coming. That's like the hardest thing in the world. Um, one of my clients deals with this all the time and um, it stresses them out for sure. So <laughs> here's what I would say. What's worked for a lot of my clients on this type of stuff is actually having separate accounts for things. And you can get as crazy as you want with this. I mean, you can have like literally 15, 20 different bank accounts that you name all sorts of things. I don't think you necessarily need all of that stuff. But I would, given your situation, have one called health insurance. Um, I would have a health insurance account that you like, you make sure when that large payment comes in, you kind of estimate. So for instance, if you know you get paid once a year, really, but you're not actually sure when in the year you're going to get paid, when that large payment comes in, you actually have probably have to set aside expenses for 12 to 15 months. You get what I'm saying here? Because you don't know when the next one's going to come in. So it might come in earlier than the year or the next year, but might actually come in later, in which case you actually need another three months of runway. So unpredictability means that you have to add buffers into how you're planning for things. So if you got paid once a year, I would probably take the health insurance number, multiply that by 15, and then put that into my health insurance account. The other thing I would do is the same thing with your home expenses. So you want to buy a home. Um... The first thing to do is actually go listen to the episode, and I can't remember the episode number. Oh, no, that's really bad. Let me see. Let me think. Episode number 11 on homeownership. So I'm not going to go too deep into that. You should go listen to the episode if you haven't, but you really shouldn't be spending more than 20% of your income on your home. So what does that mean? You make $100,000 a year. You shouldn't be spending more than $20,000 a year on your mortgage plus your taxes plus your insurance. Okay, so keeping that in mind, um, you have to do the same thing as your health insurance. You probably want to have a house account where you're putting aside an amount of money for a down payment, and the down payment is probably going to be based on how much you can afford based on your current income now at the 20% level. Um, I know that that's kind of like heavy in the math, so what I'll do is in the show notes, or actually no, on the um, on the Money Owners blog, so go to moneyowners.com forward slash 15, I will have how you actually do this so that you know what I'm talking about. So you actually know how much house you can afford to based on your income. The other thing to keep in mind if you're buying a house and you're two business owners is that your business has to be at least two years old for them to consider your tax returns um, for home ownership. So um, I think Fannie or Freddie, one of them, or they're, they're dropping down to one year of tax returns, but your business generally has to be two years old to get a loan. Um, and since you're two business owners, let's say if one person just started their business and then the other person started it much longer ago, you actually might only be able to use one of your incomes um, to, to apply for that mortgage. So that's something else to keep in mind. If that's the case, then you're actually doing that 20% number based off of that income. Well, actually, no, you could do a 36% number, which is what they'll actually loan you. But just keep in mind that if you're, you have to make sure that your income together combined is closer to that 20% number um, so that you'll be able to save. And it'll also actually help you when it comes to paying for the home and setting aside um, money and everything else that you're going to have to be doing. So you're already in a situation where funds are tight. So what you don't want to be doing is spending, you know, majority of your after-tax income on your home, and you're also like now underwater trying to make mortgage payments while you're waiting for a big payment to come in, which may or may not come in once a year, right? So like managing your expenses is actually just as important, especially related to your home. And I would say for people, right, like one of my clients that this sent me this article that was said like, go buy your freaking latte or whatever. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like this really angry article that Sally Krawcheck or somebody like that wrote about like, you know, how people mansplain about savings. But what is right about that is like your latte isn't really going to move the needle. I mean, it does over a long period of time, but it's not really going to move the needle on day to day expenses, especially like related to business owners having cash flow issues. What does move the needle are the very large fixed expenses. So not taking on a massive mortgage um, when you're a business owner who is, you know, doesn't get paid regularly, that's like one of the best things to do to make sure that you have free cash flow to be able to actually pay for stuff in your life and pay for stuff in your business. Um, the other thing, so to get back to multiple bank accounts is that you probably also need one for taxes. So I would say you want to set one up for your home expenses. You want to set one up for health insurance and then the third one for taxes. And then you could probably have a fourth one. That's just your main account for regular spending. Um, unless you specifically think that you have issues with certain categories or, you know, like vacation is really important to your family and it's really important to you that you have 20 grand in an account like that. Um, some of my clients like to do that because they like to know that they have their money set aside for travel. Um, I would say that's another one to have, but at some point it becomes like totally unmanageable. <laughs> I think at least, um, I don't like to have so many bank accounts. I find it really difficult to actually manage it, but I think for your specific situation, it will be helpful. I mean, the other thing that you could do is just have an account that's like called home expenses and health insurance. And you dump both of those things into one and you knew, you know, that you only use that account for those things. Um, and then the other thing being is like, you really should estimate how long it will be between payments. So really like how irregularly are you getting paid? Take a look over the last like two years that your business has been in business. What does it look like? How have you, often have you gotten paid? What is, what was like kind of the workflow that led to you getting paid? Are you doing that same kind of workflow now? So should you be expecting payments around the same time? I mean, plus or minus a couple of months. So you have to keep those things in mind to know how much to set aside. When you have no idea, that's where it starts to get really tricky. Um, and also, it's probably more of a situation where your business will fail and you'll have to go back and get a regular job. Um, that also really means that if it's so irregular, like maybe the business itself isn't really as much of a business as you think it is. So um, those are things to think about. And then the last thing is like, spending really shouldn't be high relative to income. So I notice a lot of the times when my clients get into issues is really that like they're almost spending every dollar um, with the exception of maybe retirement contributions. They're spending basically every single dollar that they have coming uh, in after taxes is basically just going right out the door. So when you get paid irregularly, that makes it really hard if every dollar that's coming in is going out because you don't really have a cushion to be able to manage some of the other stuff. So take a good hard look at your expenses. Like maybe one of the reasons why you're having so much trouble managing your cash flows is because of that specific issue. Um, okay. That's all I have to say on that. I'm sure we'll, that will come up again, and thanks for the question. All right. How do you know when it's time to save for retirement as a business owner? This is a question somebody else asked. I thought that this was a great question, um, and it, I hate to say this, but it depends. <laughs> um, yeah, it depends. What kind of business are you in, Are you running? Um, do you, is it a capital-intensive business, meaning do you did you need to put a lot of money into it to get it up and running? Do you continually need to put a lot of money into it to get it, to continue to have it running? Or is it like a service-type business where it's just your time? Um, and I don't misconstrue what I'm saying right now to mean that your time isn't worth anything, because I think it is, but it's a little bit different when it comes to saving for retirement if you don't actually need to put that capital to work in your business. Um, also, there are probably places in your business, even if it's not capital intensive, where you do have to make some kind of capital investment. So I would say that you should evaluate that. So what does that look like in your business? What does it look like in previous years? Um, 
yeah, I mean, there's no kind of standard number for how much you need to be setting aside to reinvest back into your business. But I know personally, like, I like to have at least three months worth of cash flow just in the bank for regular operating expenses. Um, I feel a lot more comfortable when it's more like six months, but three months for me is at a minimum. And when that account starts to go under the three month mark, I start like totally panicking, even though we're not poor. <laughs> but yeah, I know like that, that for me is like a number I can't sleep at night. Um, there also is like a amount uh, that I actually reinvest back into the business for certain things or to expand or to do to market myself or do anything else. So um, that though, for me, because I am in a service business is generally lower than let's say somebody who's in a tech business who has to pay a bunch of engineers to actually create software and everything else. So I think depending on what business you're in, you actually have to look at like how much your operating cash flow looks like, how much money you have to set aside, and then think about whether or not you can put money away for retirement. So if you have enough operating cash flow and you have a not like, and you've actually created a budget and you've set aside enough so that you can reinvest into a um, into your business, that's actually the point at which it's appropriate for you to contribute to a retirement account. Um, and as a small business owner, it depends what kind of business you're running. Um, and by what kind of business, I mean whether or not you have employees, what accounts are open to you. I don't want to get into that right now, so I'm not going to. But if you have a question on that, just send me a DM and let me know. At Morgan, under, uh, sorry, at Morgan with an E, Rochard, or at money underscore owners. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I'm like really sniffling over here. <laughs> okay. I have another question. Morgan, I am recently engaged and it's always been a dream of mine to have a big wedding. How do I know what is an appropriate amount to spend? I love this question. I know I loved like all of the questions tonight. So I love this question because people always overspend on their weddings. <laughs> and in fact, I think I could probably do a whole episode on this. So, um, or maybe I'll just like pound out all my thoughts here into this specific to answer this specific question. But basically what always happens is right. We have a thought in our head that our wedding has to be perfect. Um, and I'm guilty of this too. Don't get me wrong. Like my husband and I, we got married almost three years ago. Now we got married in France, which was lovely. And that's where my husband's from. So it's not like weird that we just, you know, made all of our family go there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, like the thing was, is right. We kind of shifted the cost onto our guests and none like, we didn't have that many guests as a result of it because it was really expensive to get to the place. But because of it, we only had like 38 people there and it ended up being really high quality and not that expensive. Um, but you have to take into account that like literally every single person there had to spend somewhere between 900 and 1200 dollars to get there, which is, you know, it's quite high, uh, per person. And so like basically my entire dad's side of family didn't come and most of my mom's side of the family didn't come. And, um, majority of our guests were my mother-in-law and father-in-law's friends, um, which was really nice. Actually, they like filled in the dance floor and they like French people really know how to have a good time. So, uh, <laughs> it was a good wedding, but these are all things to keep in mind, right? Like when I was thinking about it, one of the reasons why I didn't want to have a wedding in New York was because I knew at a minimum there was no way we got out of spending less than $60,000 um, for a number of reasons. Number The number one reason being that um, we had to, we were going to invite everyone from our family and our close friends and they would all come. <laughs> there wasn't going to be a single person who wasn't going to come to the wedding. Um, and that was going to keep the cost high. So, um, other options that at that point were to do a destination, were to have it a little bit further outside New York to keep the cost lower. Um, all things to think about when you're planning a wedding. Um, I don't have an exact number for you on what's appropriate to spend. What I can tell you, though, is that you probably need to work on what you're thinking about it because whatever you want to spend is probably too much. So 
I know this is going to sound insane to anybody who's listening to this and isn't in New York or LA or one of these like, you know, hoity-toity cities that we're all in that we spend lots of money on, but like an average wedding in New York costs like $100,000, which I know is like sick. It's like kind of ridiculous. But why does it cost that, right? It costs that because people have a sit-down dinner. It costs that because they're not willing to sacrifice on anything. They have to have the videographer. They have to have the photographer. They have to have an open bar. They have to have a certain number of guests there. They have to have the band, right? Like all of these things start to add up over time. Um, and there are no non-negotiables. I'm, I'm sorry, there are no negotiables. They're all non-negotiable. Non-negotiable equals expensive. So one of the reasons why things become non-negotiable is because of how you're thinking about them in your head. So for instance, I've heard from people, well, if I don't have a sit-down dinner, then my family will judge me. That's like a thought you're having. Your family's probably going to judge you anyways. (laughs) That's what families do, right? We like judge each other and we do it behind each other's backs, right? That's like just like the definition of family. Um, but we love each other anyways. So I think like that's one of the things is like you can't really control what people think about your wedding. So if one of the reasons why you're having, let's say, a 10-piece band or you're having a certain, you know, type of alcohol, like top shelf type alcohol at your open bar or you're having, you know, oysters or you're having whatever you're having at your wedding and you're doing it because you're trying to people please, like the only person or the only two people you have to please at your wedding is you and your future spouse. So keep that in mind that all these people who are coming to your wedding, who are there to celebrate, they're going to have their own thoughts regardless of what you do, right? You can't please everybody in that room. And usually what happens at weddings is that there's such an aura of love and everything else um, that goes into just celebrating two people coming together to be together for the rest of their lives that none of that stuff really matters. Um, And the people who are there who are complaining about stuff, like who cares about them anyways? So I would say that's number one is change your thoughts on that because um, the more non-negotiables you have, the higher the price tag is going to be. The second thing is, um, I'm assuming this person is a woman, but um, mostly because I usually only get these questions from women. But if you're a man, I mean, that's fine too. But (laughs) basically, um, the dress is another thing I hear quite a bit. The dress is non-negotiable. I have to spend a certain amount of money because I have to get the dress of my dreams and everything else. So um, the dress becomes a huge deal. And you literally only wear it once and then you like pretend like your daughter is going to wear it, but like she's not because I tried on my mom's dress. Um, and I actually was like seriously considering wearing my mom's wedding dress and it literally like looked horrific on me. I looked terrible in it because it was like made for my mom and my mom's body type, which is not my body type. So something to keep in mind, I mean, the other thing being that like your kid's probably going to get married 30 years after you got married. So it's probably not going to be in the same style and they're not going to want to wear your dress. So don't buy it with the anticipation of it being a family item that gets passed down. Um, I hear that also a lot with rings of like, oh, well, I had to spend $40,000 on my um, spouse's wedding ring because or engagement ring because like now it's going to be a fairly family heirloom and it's great and everything else. And like my wife had to have the best. And it's like, no, you thought that your wife had to have the best, (laughs) right? It's all about what you were thinking in your head, which is why you bought that. Um, The number one thing I see also is that when people spend a lot of money on rings and on weddings, they don't have the money that they, that they need to actually buy the house that they still want to buy after they do those things. So something to keep in mind is like, yes, experiences are really important. And yes, you want to do something to celebrate the day with your spouse for sure. Um, But you don't want to break the bank so much that you can't do anything else afterwards or you don't have the money to buy the home of your dreams because you spent it all on the wedding and you spent it all on the ring and the dress and everything else. Or you um, are miraculously missing the amount of money for a down payment (laughs) 
for a home that you otherwise would have had because you spent it on your wedding. Um, or like you wanted to take this fantastic honeymoon, but then you don't have money in the budget because you just blew it all on your wedding. And you probably really would have enjoyed a honeymoon with your new spouse, like a two week time off that you probably would be able to take somewhere really special that you'd remember if you don't spend all the money on the wedding. So all of these things are something that you should keep in mind. I would say, um, at a maximum, you really shouldn't be spending more than 10 to 15% of your total net worth on your wedding because it takes a long time to save up for these things. So um, you don't want to blow it all there and um, be financially insolvent as a result of your wedding. So 10 to 15% is usually a good place to start. Um, I really like the 7% number. <laughs> I like that number a lot because like you usually end up at 10% after you do 7% because everything always goes over budget. So I think shoot for 7%, then you'll end up at 10%. Don't start at 15% because then you usually end up at 20%. Um, so those are some numbers to keep in mind. And then also if like you're the kind of person who you're not even, let's say you're not even in a relationship yet, but you know that you're the kind of person that wants a big wedding, you should actually be saving for this now. So People out there who are in their 20s who know they're going to want to have a wedding, you know, somewhere around age 28 to 35, just start like putting away 100 or 200 bucks a month for your wedding. I mean, you might not end up using it for whatever reason, but like you're, I guarantee you, you're not going to be upset. I promise you, you will not be upset if you save $2,400 a year um, extra for your wedding, for your future wedding, uh, between now and when you actually get married. So, I mean, you probably need to save more than that. If you actually want to have one of these big weddings in New York, you probably need to be looking at more like 300 or $500 a month. Um, but I think like at least putting aside something will make you feel good about it later on when you do spend it, knowing that you did put it aside for that specific thing. All right. So I've been sniffling and sniffling here. So I'm going to cut this episode short after four questions. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Money Owners. Um, can you guys do me a favor? I'm offering you all this great information. Can you write me a review and give me five stars on iTunes, please? I would just be so, so appreciative. I want to keep the show going and I want to have lots of listeners and I want people to be money owners. That's the whole point of this is that you feel um, a sense of ownership and responsibility towards your money and that you live your most deliberate life and that you do it in a way that like gives you the opportunity to also be a business owner and do things that you love. So, um, I'd love to keep the show going and I would love it if you guys can give me a five-star review on iTunes. And if you can also retweet or share on LinkedIn where I post it, that would be really great. Just, you know, tell a friend about it or tell a spouse or tell a family member. And I will talk to y'all in two weeks. Thanks so much. Oh, um, I am at Morgan with an E Rochard on Twitter and I'm at money underscore owners also on Twitter. So if you have questions for the next Q and a episode, send them there and I'll talk to y'all in two weeks. Thanks.